what Jonah is doing right here. As he calls God out and says, I knew this is what you would do. And that's why I went the opposite way. What we find is that he mistrusted the rightness of God. And because his opinion came in conflict with God's decision, Jonah made the final decision. And made himself the final authority. Running from the Lord comes from a mistrust in the Lord. Welcome to Refuge Podcast, a weekly Bible study for young adults at Calvary Chapel, San Juan Capistrano. Great to see you guys tonight. Turn your Bibles to the book of Jonah, Old Testament book of Jonah. It's on page 1147 in my Bible. I don't know if that helps, but we are starting a brand new study tonight. So um, if this is your first time, you're joining us at, at, a, at the right time. It's our first study in the book of Jonah. We just finished the book of 1 Corinthians, so thought it'd be fun to do a, a Old Testament book. So Jonah tonight. All right? The 32nd book of the Bible. Let's pray. If you can't find it, it's right by Obadiah and Micah. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening, and God, we pray that you would speak to us through this book. We thank you, Lord, that it's written in your word. Um, it's here for um, an unveiling and revealing of who you are. And so, God, we pray tonight that you would speak to us through the power of your word, um, through the anointing and gifting of the Holy Spirit. And, God, we thank you that you love us, that you care for us. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd meet individual needs this evening. And, uh, God, through worship, through a time of your word, would you encourage and uplift and uh, even rebuke, Lord, where there needs to be that correction from your word. And, and so uh, we love you, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. And everybody says, amen. Well, um, obviously, this is uh, a story. A, it's one of the most well-known short stories in the Bible. Like I said, it's the 32nd book of the Bible. Whether you grew up in church or not, this is a story you probably have heard of Jonah and the whale or Jonah and the fish. Um, however, it being well-known doesn't mean that we understand it well. As, uh, as well-known and familiar as, as it may be for us doesn't mean that it's well-understood. And a lot of times when we come to some of these stories that we've learned as kids or grown up with, or even the sense of how um, a lot of people are very skeptical of the book of Jonah, of like, yeah, okay. Like if you've never been to church before, you're kind of like coming to church for the first time and you're like, seriously, Jonah and the whale? Like that's what we're going to be going. That's, that's what young adults are going to be studying. Um, hold on. Don't leave. It gets better. So, um, so yes, it is that book that we're going to be studying, but it, what is this book really about? This book is about Jonah. Um, the minor prophets usually start with a word of the Lord or a word from the Lord. The word of the Lord came to and the uh, to the prophet, and then from that place, the word of the Lord goes out to the people. And, and the book then takes on the theme of that message to God's people. 
But Jonah is unique in that in the very first verse, it goes from the word of the Lord, then it changes the subject back to the prophet himself. So verse one, it says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa and found a ship to go to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went down into it to go from, or go to, to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. In Jonah's story, it quickly turns its attention to the prophet himself. He was a prophet called by God to represent the Lord to the Jewish people. Uh, and, And we will come to find out that Jonah had a different idea of God. And when God speaks to him, the reason he reacts the way he reacts is because of his view of God, which is an incorrect view of God. And he had a God of his own making, if you will. And it didn't represent the God of the Bible. And he's going to be confronted with who God really is and what is really in his own heart, in Jonah's heart. And Jonah was the son of some guy named Amittai, the prophet. He was a native to the Gath Hefer Galilean village. Uh, I didn't really study Hebrew or Greek or Israeli names in Bible college the one year that I went. So uh, my pronunciation's a little off. But it was in Galilee, a village just north of where Jesus grew up in Nazareth. And Jonah was the successor of Elijah, of Elisha, and probably acquainted with them both, and was the link between Hosea, Amos, and Isaiah. It is likely that he was trained in the schools of the prophets, and then he exercised his ministry during the reign of Jeroboam II, and you can read about him in 2 Kings, and, and even perhaps before the rule of Jeroboam. Now, we say all that to understand who this guy is and where he's coming from. He, he's alive and working uh, for the Lord and called by God at a very specific time in Israel's history. Um, and the king that he was under was a guy who had uh, a desire to basically militarily advance the kingdom of Israel through, through military. Like just, we're going to take over, we're going to fight. Uh, it was a, a warring time in, in those days, but he was also a wicked king. A lot of other prophets at the time did not stand with him because he was unjust and ungodly. But Jonah, we find out, stood with him and like supported him. So he's a very interesting character. And the book of Jonah is about, first of all, it's about Jonah. But he's been called to go to a city called Nineveh. And this city of Nineveh was at the heart of the Assyrian Empire. It was located, it's located in modern day Iraq. Uh, It was a Gentile city, meaning that it was not Jewish, but was a violent, incredibly violent civilization. Assyria was the dreaded foe of Israel, like the the scourge with which um, God was going to punish his own people with, to use them as a tool to bring Israel back to the Lord. Perhaps Jonah knew this, and perhaps that's why Jonah had such a hatred for these people. But for generations, Assyria had been making fierce raids on people that lived in lands bordering on the Mediterranean Sea, and the punishments which which they inflicted upon their captives were cruel beyond the cruelties of those times. Like, they were famous for how incredibly cruel and sadistic they were. 
Um, they would take their captives and those that were part of their family members of, of those captives, they would decapitate them, put their heads on poles and make their family members carry those poles. They would fillet, they would flay their prisoners alive and they would shake their hands as they died. Like they, they would, this is the kind of evil and wickedness. When they would capture people, they would put rings in their faces, in their lips, in their ears, and they would chain them all together and they would lead them back to their, their homeland by the ears, by the face. Like this is the type of wickedness. And this was coming against Jonah's own countrymen. Sorry if it's a little too graphic, but that's, that's the reality. Like when it talks about the wickedness of Nineveh, this is the wickedness that he's talking about. And it was forever memorialized on the columns of their city as you would enter on, on the columns of their city were engraved in these columns pictures of what they would do to their captives. So that when you came to that city, there was a real understanding of, of their, like, you don't mess with them. Like, they were a force to be reckoned with. Like, if you come against us, this is what happens to you. We don't care if you're a man, you're a woman, child, this is what will take place to you if you come against us. And these acts were forever memorialized on their city, and they're actually been discovered by archaeologists. If you go to the, the museum in London, you can actually see a picture of what Nineveh would look like. And I'm sure if you have Google, you can also see that. <laughs> Without even going to London. So, so there. But this was a Gentile city. And normally, the prophets were called to speak to the Jewish people. But why would God call a Jewish prophet to go to a people who are outside the covenants of God to share with those who he not only feared, but hated? It would be the equivalent of a Jewish rabbi going to Berlin in 1943 and calling Nazi Germany to repentance. Like, that's the equivalent. And this is what God is asking Jonah to do. Why would God do this? Because the book itself is theological in nature with the intention of revealing more of who God is and in the process, revealing our hearts as well to us. This book is about God. And, and, and the question that Jonah asked is, why would God reach out to my enemy, the enemy of his chosen people? And this teaches us about God's heart for the believer and for the unbeliever. This book teaches us about God's heart for sinners, and we can mistake often God's mercy for his approval. And that's what Jonah is struggling with here. How could love, how could, how could God love them? Like, how could God reach out to them with mercy? How could God send me with a message of repentance, and if they turn, God would relent? Like, why doesn't God just burn them? Like, why doesn't God just take them out? Why, is, why would God do this? And he's struggling with this idea of how could God love them when he says, I understand what God loves me. Obviously, I'm lovable. <laughs> well, hello? Like, who wouldn't? I'm adorable. And so he's struggling with this idea of how could God be just and merciful at the same time? How could a, a God that we serve and love be just and merciful completely, totally at the same time. In our world, those things tend to level up. Justice happens at one time, mercy happens at another. It's not like we can be just and merciful at the same time. So where do those meet on a human level? And that's what Jonah is saying. I don't understand how this could be. 
How can God be just and how can he be merciful at the same time? It just doesn't make sense. But the book of Jonah is like a mirror in that we will see ourselves in it. But what you see is a revelation of your own heart. When, when it, it holds the mirror up to itself, what will we see in regards to how we view God and how we view other people who are outside of God's family? Will we see the beauty of God or the same brokenness of Jonah. Now Jonah is running from God's command and it reveals a tendency in all of us. Okay, the Bible is meant to be held close to us as something personal. When we read it, we're not like this is just to an ancient people at an ancient time. This is a, a, the word of God is the same yesterday, today, forever. It is meant to be understood and held close and applied today. It's, it's for us now. So when I read that, that Jonah begins to not only hear the word of the Lord, which is something we all, I think, desire, like, right? Like, God, what is your will for my life? Imagine if you're like, God, what is your will for my life? And he says, I'm going to speak verbally to you right now. This is my will for your life. Here you go. And you're like, this is what I've always wanted. This is what I've always, I'm so excited. Go ahead and give it to me. He's like, I want you to do the most difficult thing ever in the history of human beings. And you're like, nah, that's not for me. <laughs> I didn't hear that quite. Aidez-moi. Um, sorry, that was from Wayne's World. Moving on. Jonah then runs from the Lord. But in Jonah running from God's command, it reveals a tendency in all of us, and that is to run from God. And you're like, I'm not running from God, I'm at church. Hold on a second. Are you running from God? This is a question that we need to ask ourselves as we come to it, because we run away from God in two different ways. So within the tendency to run from God, where is it that we run to? Either you run to lawlessness or legalism. And that's what Jonah does. He runs, first of all, just straight to lawlessness. Jonah is going to end up at both of these places, but it happens in succession. Like, he goes, he ends up going to Nineveh begrudgingly because a fish, like, swallowed him and then spit him up on a beach. And he's like, I guess God's speaking to me. I should probably go. But when he goes, he preaches some half-hearted, like, lame message, 40 days and destruction comes. Doesn't even tell them about, like, how to repent or how to turn. Just like, 40 days, you're all going to burn. Then goes outside of the city, sits up on a hill, and sits there and goes, okay, now do it. Destroy them. I did what you asked me to do. Now you do what I want you to. You can go of one of two ways when you run from God. You can fully go into disobedient lawlessness where God says, I want you to do, <laughs> it's basically like the opposite. So when, when he gets on this boat to go to this place called Tarshish, everyone say Tarshish. Tarshish. It's just a fun word, <laughs> Tarshish. So when he goes to Joppa and then actually gets on a boat, pays the fare, gets on the boat to go, it's going to a place that's off the coast of Spain. Tarshish is in the opposite direction of Nineveh. Like, in, if you look on a map, it's this way and that way. Lawlessness is completely the opposite of what God calls us to do. Where God calls us to holiness, and you're like, I'm going to be unholy. God calls you to be faithful, and you're like, ah, 
I don't think so. I'm going to be unfaithful. It's the exact opposite of what God calls us to do. So a lot of times when people run from God, they're like, you know what? This is, I know this is what God said. I'm doing the exact opposite of that. God calls me to sexual purity. Watch this. God calls me to a life of holiness. Watch this. Shush, shush, shush. It's all the Tarshish words. Like, it gets me all confused. So it's the opposite. God calls us to be holy, and we say, man, I'm going to be unholy. God says, be faithful, and we say, I'm going to be unfaithful. It's direct disobedience to the Lord. In the same way that he went the opposite direction, a lot of times that's how we also run from the Lord, is the opposite direction. Now, however, there's lawlessness and there's legalism. Or another word for it would be religiosity, which is what we see in the second half of this book. After he is swallowed by a fish, which is not the main emphasis of the book, by the way. Everyone's like, it's Jonah and the fish. Jonah and the fish. That's what it's all about when you're a kid. You're like, he got swallowed. <laughs> oh, man. There's a whole nother like, section to what happens next. And that's like the most important part. Right? The fish is actually only mentioned in three verses. That God prepared a great fish, that Jonah was swallowed by a great fish, and that Jonah was spit up by a great fish. And that's it. Like, that's the only time it's mentioned. Because it's not about the fish. <laughs> Legalism, however, after he's swallowed by a fish, he goes to Nineveh, he preaches a half-hearted message, and then goes and sits on that hill and watches God now burn that city. He goes to the city angry with God and hating his neighbor, and that's how the book ends. Sorry. We're going to be in this book a little bit longer than one week. So, so that's how it ends. He's like, I'm angry at God. I hate these people. And it's like, it's done. We don't know how it ends. We don't know what happens next. That's the end of the story of Jonah. Sorry. But we see this. Listen, this is also paralleled in the New Testament. Jesus spoke about Jonah twice. Interesting. And he used even Jonah's idiotic mistake as a symbol of his own death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus even said, one sign will be given to you, and that will be the sign of Jonah. What? That he was in the belly of the fish for three days. As Jonah was in the, fi in the fish for three days, so will the Son of, of Man be in the belly of the earth and will come back to life. Like, he uses Jonah, anyway, we'll get to that in a few weeks. But, but even that... But here's another way that he uses Jonah's own, um, Jonah's life as, an, as a, a parable of, of what we see in legalism and also lawlessness. In Luke's gospel, chapter 15, Jesus tells a parable about a father who had two sons. The most famous of those sons is the prodigal son, right? The prodigal son. But remember that there's two sons in that story. And as the, you know, the story goes that the, the one son comes to his dad and he says, I want everything that you owe to me now. Like, I wish you were dead so that I could receive my inheritance, which is also a super loving thing to say to your parents. Like, I wish you were dead so that I could get my stuff. So if you could do that now, that'd be great. I want my inheritance now and I'm going to go live the way that I want to live. So he does that. The father gives him his inheritance. He goes and blows it on, on Money, gambling, food, and, and all that stuff, and women. And that's how he lives, prodigally. He ends up in, in the pigsty. You guys know the story. There he is, about to eat what the pigs eat because he's starving to death. A, a young Jewish boy has nothing to do with pigs. Shouldn't be there, but here he is at the very bottom. And he comes to his senses and he says, 
The servants in my father's house eat better than this. Perhaps I can go and work my way back into his home, into his good graces. And so he heads home. You guys know the story. And the father runs out to him. He sees him from afar off. He runs out to him. He falls on him. According to, to Jewish law and Levitical law, that could, as soon as he would have come into town, people would have started picking up rocks to kill this kid. Like because of what, how he shamed his father. And so the dad runs out to him, throws his arms around him, protects him from any rock that would hit him. It's going to hit him. He says, no, no one kill my son. This guy, he was dead and now he's alive. My son's returned. Kill the fatted calf, bring a robe, throw a ring on his finger, put sandals on his feet. My son's alive. It's this wonderful picture of the grace of God, the mercy of God. Although we were far from him, we left, we, we lived in this prodigal way. We, we sold all that God had given to us of his glory and possession. We wasted it all, but yet God welcomes him back home, right? Beautiful story. There's another brother in the story. And in Luke chapter 15, verse 29, he says this, and this is the son speaking to his father. He answered his father, look. All these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You see this brother, come, the other brother comes to his dad and he says, I don't understand you. How could you be merciful and just at the same time? I have faithfully slaved for you. I love that. I slaved for you. I have done nothing but honor you. I have done everything that you asked of me to do and you have never blessed me like this guy. That is a picture of legalism. That is a picture of having a wrong view of God. Because God, I put my money in the machine, I push the buttons, now you give me what I deserve. I've served you. I've loved you, I've been faithful, now you owe me. The tendency of legalism is to put God into our debt by our, mor our moral accumulation. So there's both. There's lawlessness, you're running from God. You're living in a way that, that is so counter to God's law and counter to God's commands, but there's also another way to run from God and we hide behind our own moral standing of self-righteousness. That too is sin. You see, sin is not just about the bad things that we do, but also the good things that we do with wrong motives and selfish ambition. We can use our moral record to put God into our debt. So why did Jonah run from God? We aren't told in this chapter, but often it's portrayed as that he was just fearful. Like, why did he run? It's like, well, he was scared. Like, I would be scared of going to Nineveh if I was Jewish and these people are going to kill me and they're like really good at it. Um, I would be a little nervous. And you're like, but I don't think he was as scared and cowardly as we all may think. 
And looking at the way that the Ninevites uh, treated their captives, you could say, man, like that, would, that might be a factor of fear, fear factor, Joe Rogan. But when you look at the fact that Jonah was willing to, A, be thrown over the side of a ship in a gnarly storm, like, right, as we're moving through this, this passage, at one point he's like in this storm and he's like, you know what, throw me overboard. If the guy was a coward, I don't think that would have been an option. I mean, like, you know what, let's just get somewhere safe and then pull down the ladder and then I'll walk off and everything will be cool. Okay? I don't think he was a coward. But not only that, I don't think the guy was a coward in the sense that, that he, was, um, he was willing to make this treacherous journey to this really far country. He's like, willing, like I'll pay the toll and I'll go. Like, as long as I don't have to go there. The, the, the journey from, from Joppa to Tarshish was an incredibly dangerous journey. It's, it's a scary sea. Like, that's a long ways to go. So I don't think he was as fearful and cowardly as we might think. So why did he run? Well, look at Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. But it, ple- but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, Was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life for me, for it is better to me to die than to live. He just told us why he ran. Why did he run? Because he did not trust in the rightness of God. He says, I know who you are. I know exactly who you are. I know that you're a gracious, merciful, tender-hearted, loving God. And because you're not going to do what I wanted you to do, I went, I went the opposite way. Notice that there was a moment where he had a conversation with God. He says, didn't I say this? Oh, oh, oh wait, 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 wait. I think I did say this. Like, can you imagine having this conversation with God? Talk about being honest with the Lord. Like, hold on, God. One second here. Let's rewind the tape and look exactly at what I said. Like, that's how I do it with my kids. Now, hold on a second, kids. Didn't I say, who's right? Who was right? Dad was right. That's right. Oh, I'm so glad you came to that conclusion. That's what Jonah is doing right here. As he calls God out and says, I knew this is what you would do. And that's why I went the opposite way. What we find is that he mistrusted the rightness of God. And because his opinion came in conflict with God's decision, Jonah made the final decision. And made himself the final authority. Running from the Lord comes from a mistrust in the Lord. But also, Jonah struggled with the fact that how could God be merciful and just at the same time? Jonah wanted justice and saw God's mercy to the Ninevites as his approval of what they were doing. And in doing so, Jonah created his own version of God. And this is what we have to be extremely careful that we don't do. Who the Bible says that God is is who he is. Not your opinion of God, not my opinion of God, not what I like of the attributes of God, and not what you like of the attributes of God. God is who he reveals himself to be in scripture. We can create a version of God that contradicts 
the word of God. Guys, we cannot pick and choose the aspects of God's character that we agree with. This could not be more relevant than what we're living in right now. This could not be more relevant. What we're talking about of creating a version of God that we enjoy and trust is exactly why the church here in America is exactly where the church is in America. It's dead. Because we, dis, we make our own version of him. And when you make your own version of him, it's a false God. It's not the real God. Especially when you only pick those aspects that allow us to do what we want and how we want to. For instance, you may agree with God's stance on sexual purity, but you scoff at his way of ministering to the poor and giving generously. Or maybe you agree with God's word of love, of loving one another and to be generous. And you love that aspect of God's word of like, we're called to minister. We're called to go to the lowest of lows. But when it comes to sexual purity, that's the part where you're like, oh God, so old fashioned. I disagree. Listen, God offers his mercy and God's mercy that's been offered to us is not his approval of what we do, but he offered it in spite of what we do. And this book teaches us that the same mercy that the world needs is the same mercy that we need for ourselves. And until we see God's mercy over our lives as something that we can't earn and didn't deserve, and we see our sin for what it is, we will continue to view the world as kindling for hell instead of the mission of God that he has called us to. A mistrust of God's character causes us to run from him and to pick and choose certain aspects of his character is to have God in our own making. And a God of your own making is a God that cannot change you. It's a God that cannot change you. And because he cannot change you, you stay as you are, never advancing and fully coming into the work of the Holy Spirit that God desires to do. It is God's calling out of our sin that changes us. And so if you continue to ignore and only pick aspects of which that make you comfortable and support your lifestyle and support what you want to do, guess what? You will stay as you are. But if you allow God's word to speak for who he is, and this is who God is, and this is who I'm to reflect because I'm his child, I'm a new creation in Christ, you will change by the power of God's word. But by calling God what you want him to be, it doesn't make him who he is. Just in the saying that, that says like, I'm, I'm a I'm skinny, doesn't make me skinny. Like that, that doesn't, that's not real. Like I'm as light as a feather, doesn't make me as light as a feather. Any more than saying that God in his word, listen, that's old school. He doesn't mean that anymore. Does not make it true. And if it was, God would have changed it himself. He doesn't need us to change anything. He doesn't need us to apologize for him. Do you know that? Like God doesn't need you to apologize for him. When you come to his word and there's something in it that like hits you hard and it hits other people in a way that makes them uncomfortable, it's designed to do so because the God of the Bible is the God who desires to change you. And when he brings up sin, it's not with the, the purpose of just condemnation. It is for the purpose of transformation because we're called to something else. 
We're called to a different way of life. So the question is, like, are you running from that? Are you running from God in just straight up disobedience? Or are you hiding behind legalism and your own moral standing? Both, guess what, are wrong and sinful. And it happens to all of us. Sin blinds us to the truth. And for the Ninevites, lawlessness blinded them from the truth. But for Jonah, his legalism blinded him from the truth. And what this book will teach us in the days ahead is that God pursues us both. God pursues us both. To the legalist, to the lawless, God chases after them with all that he is. How can God be just and merciful at the same time? Right? We ask that question. Where does that connect and where does that meet? The answer is found in the person of Jesus Christ. The answer is found in the gospel. When Jonah was like, I don't understand. How can God punish sin and yet still offer salvation in the sense that he's not going to wipe these people out? How does that connect? It connects at the person of Jesus Christ. Where God punishes sin upon Jesus. He, he there on the cross, judges sin. But you didn't pay for it. Jesus pays for it. And he offers to us salvation, eternal life, mercy, grace by faith. This is where it all connects. How can the justice of God exist within the mercy of God at the same time? It's because Jesus Christ came as fully man, fully God, dying upon the cross, taking our sin, leaving it there in the grave, rising to new life and saying, in me, you have life. Forgiveness of sin. And this is what Jonah struggled to understand. And he hid behind his own legalism, running from God in both directions. It is God's grace that brings us back to him because we ran from God, but he ran after you. He ran after you. The Bible tells us that... <clears throat> the Bible tells us that he left glory, wrapped himself in flesh, lived a life that we could not live so that we didn't have to die that we deserved, die the death that we deserved. He took our punishment, our sin, and he offers us eternal life by his grace. By, our, by his grace. This is something, and I know you're like, we're in Jonah like really we're going to talk about Jonah and the gospel, like the two most simple things in the world. I don't know about you, but this book is theological. This book speaks of who God is, and it reveals God in a way that is unique to the Old Testament. It's unique to the Old Testament in that Jesus references it so much. I mean, that's insane. This guy did some stupid stuff, and Jesus says, yeah, I can redeem that. I'm going to redeem that. Watch this. The symbol of your stupidity is gonna be the symbol of my triumph. Like, that's ridiculous. So, so however far you are, you're running from the Lord, God can use it and redeem it. You're hiding behind legalism and you think like, I'm too good, I don't need Jesus. You do, you really, really do. You just don't know it yet. May God richly break you up. Not by his fist, but with his grace. Like, that's what we need to understand. 
Church, this is why Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote over and over and over and over again to every church letter that he wrote, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, everyone, Romans, every one of these letters to every single church and every single Christian, he writes about the gospel because we so easily stray from it and get weird. And we think that we got here because of our own like moral standing. How easy it is to go from that place of brokenness, from salvation, and you're so excited. How easy it is to run all the way back to legalism and to feel like I have earned this. I stand here on my own two feet. Church, that's why Paul wrote so often, preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. Know that you are saved by grace. Not the good things you do and not the bad things you do. You are saved because Christ came. Like that's it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that all of it points us to you. All of it always directs us back to you. And Lord, we're thankful, God, that when we ran from you, we heard your voice. We, we heard your call. And Lord, we rejected it or we ran from it or we, we refused to come to that place of, of humbling ourselves. We're so thankful, God, that you chased us. We have over and over in scripture, verse after verse that says that you left the 99 to chase us down. You came after us. Lord, that you, that you would leave all to find the one. And we're so thankful that we serve a God that doesn't respond because we chase him, but has always been chasing us and just beckons us to respond. And so, Lord, we thank you for the love of God. Lord, if we're running from you, if we don't trust you this evening, if we don't trust your decisions that you've made and have directly affected our life, God, we come to a place, hopefully, I want to come to a place myself of realizing that you are God and I am not. You are sovereign above all things. And God, who are we that we would question you? So God, we submit to you. God, we pray that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be ever upon our lips. Our hearts would be overwhelmed by it. Just the radical truths that there is nothing that we could do to save ourselves. And Jesus, you left glory to come for us. And you, you still, Lord, bear the marks, the scars of your crucifixion for us so that in heaven we always remember what you have done for us. In heaven, in perfection, you still bear these scars so that we can always be reminded of your goodness, of your love, your mercy for us. And that's why we praise you. That's why you're worthy of our praise, God. And so Lord, as we, as we close in worship, as we sing to you, as we fellowship with one another, God, we pray that the gospel would reign supreme in our heart. Jesus, take your place again. I don't wanna, Lord, I don't wanna hide behind anything I've done and, and pretend that I'm like, yeah, I'm good. Like, I get it. There's nothing that we can do to earn your love. There's nothing that we can do to earn our way to heaven. And so, God, we give you praise because you've made a way. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name.
Amen. Let's all stand together.